Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the executive director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen, or perhaps you might even hear a talk by Henry himself. Today, my special guest is Jim Wallace, the founder, president, and editor-in-chief of Sojourners Magazine. Jim has been on the front lines of social justice issues for decades. When Henry Nouwen was alive, they were friends who honed each other's understanding of what it meant to bring God's kingdom here on earth. Jim is also a New York Times bestselling author and a regular commentator on ethics and public life in media. Today, we're going to discuss his latest book, Christ in Crisis. Believe me, there could not be a better book to dive into with the crisis of a pandemic and the tremendous need for racial justice in the world. Jim, I'm so glad to have you with us today. I want to start with your friendship with Henry Nouwen. How did you and Henry meet? And how did you influence each other's understanding of what it is to serve the poor? Oh, my goodness. Well, we met, you know, when you know somebody for so long, you can't always remember when you actually met. (laughs) So I think there was a combination of uh, my... uh, my going to speak in places where he was teaching and our finding and meeting each other and having conversations and then him coming down to visit sojourners, which he did often. We often had, you know, weekends and conversations. And, uh, in fact, one, one great story about that is, uh, he was coming down for uh, a weekend at sojourners community in our early days and we were going to spend the week, we can all, all of us talking about uh, the contemplative life and also faith and public life. So in the middle of that weekend, I got this call from a priest who was with uh, Dom Hilder Camara, the Brazilian archbishop, who happened to be speaking in Washington, D.C. that weekend, <laughs> uh, unbeknownst to me, and and the priest said, Dom Helder is really struggling with um, being at this hotel and speaking at this big conference, and and he wants to visit a base community. Uh, would you mind if he came to visit you and see you for a while this weekend? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, would we, would we mind? No, uh, please come. And by the way, uh, we have a friend with us this weekend as well, who's Henry Nowitz. And the priest said, oh, that's wonderful. So, so I drive across town. We were in one of the poorest parts of D.C. to the hotel. I remember it was the Hilton Hotel where he was speaking and feeling quite uncomfortable. And, and I, I picked him up and I drove him over to our place. And he could just see the neighborhoods changing. And you could tell he, he knew exactly what was going on. And he, uh, he crossed into our neighborhood. And we got to the house, and he said, "Could we just? Could you just take me for a walk first? So we walked around the neighborhood. Here's this wonderful man. His picture still on my wall here as I'm talking to you, Dom Helder, little man, long flowing robes, walking around the neighborhood. And he asked me questions about gentrification, which he knew backwards and forwards, the dynamics of real estate and how 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 people of color get pushed out and and white people." come in as urban pioneers. So we're walking around talking about gentrification of all things in our neighborhood. And we're walking by this, this uh, step and there's this older man who, uh, who has a bag with some looked like alcohol in the bag and he's having a drink and he looks up and sees this, this must've been looking like God standing before him. <laughs> and he, and he, quickly tried to hide the bag of whatever he was drinking. And Dom Helder said, no, no, no. And then Dom Helder uh, raised his, his, his fist and said, I'm with you. Oh, <laughs> oh that's lovely. So then we came to the house, and there's Henry. And so we had a whole week, our whole day there. Henry's was all weekend. We had a whole day with Henry Nowen and Dom Helder Camera. First time they'd ever met. 
And what a lovely conversation it was uh, to be, to bless Sojourners with that conversation. So he would come and we would meet and talk and he'd come over or I would be speaking up at Yale or Harvard while he was teaching there. And uh, he'd often have me speak in his class. And then we'd always get, get together and spend time. Great, oh, that, huh? That's lovely. It, it's interesting because you are really a veteran of Christian activism. And in a sense, I, I, I'm I, sure you influenced Henry, and I'm sure and Henry influenced you. What did he kind of bring to the table? I'm curious because I know he was drawn to um, the uh, issues of, of racism, and I know that he marched with uh, Martin Luther King to Montgomery. Uh, but... Tell me just a little bit, was there anything that he could bring into that that was a grounding, that was a value that helped shape you? I'm curious. Well, we were, um, we were uh, clearly uh, trying to figure out the relationship between faith and public life, where you might say the courses I teach uh, now at places like Harvard and Georgetown down here, faith and politics. And, and so I was raised in an evangelical tradition where personal faith was everything, and it was the only thing. <laughs> and there wasn't any relation to public life, and that's what my vocation became uh, from seminary onward. Uh, and yet Henry was, was, was uh, you know, deeply, deeply reflective about what a contemplative life would be and should should be and his own life as you know so well was was living that out trying to live out that life and so there was a real connection made because to me personal faith was still very important that could be just uh you know social justice it had to be deeply personal faith and then how do you apply that deeply personal faith in the world and my evangelical tradition that i grew up with um, uh, was just personal only, only this vertical relation to God and nothing about the world. And so I actually got kicked out of my old church at, at 15 for raising the questions of race in Detroit. Uh, so I lost my faith and moved into the movements of my time, the student movements around civil rights and anti-war, and, and came back to faith because of the text in Matthew 25 became my conversion text when Jesus said, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to, to me. And so Henry came out of that Catholic tradition, which was much deeper in terms of what it meant to, uh, to try and live as a follower of Christ in your, your own life, your whole life. Um, and I've been reading Merton and, I had met Dorothy Day, and we had begun these connections with the Catholic Church. And Henry was very deeply interested and engaging what the contemplative life meant in relation to the poor, in relation to racism. So that's why he liked to hang around sojourners. And um, and I think it was a time of really uh, the relationship was was pushing us both to go deeper, which I think was really ha- ha- happening. He would, he'd, he'd sometimes come to uh, big civil disobedience demonstrations we had in Washington, D.C., and I remember one time I asked him to, to preach to the whole group uh, just before we got arrested. <laughs> and he did, and he gave this powerful thing. But then, then he came out to, to the streets, and you could tell there was this, uh, you know, here was this uh, contemplative uh, Dutch priest trying to figure out his his uh, his comfortability in the streets with police all around, and and it was a wonderful. He, he put himself in new and often uncomfortable positions. You could tell he was feeling that sort of tension. How do I do 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 this and all? And uh, <laughs> I remember once I asked one one of our interns because we were about to get to the to, to, to the capital and I said now okay uh, you've always wanted to spend time with Henry Mellon I guess right he said oh yes he said well I want you to hang out with him the whole time 
and may have, may have make sure he's okay and doesn't get lost <laughs> or caught up in something. You follow him and run. Take uh, care of him all day, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah, what a great job that is. <laughs> so so you can tell. So the contemplative and uh, c- contemplation and, and action, my friend Richard Rohr, of course, is senator. It's called the Center for Contemplation and Action. And he, too, came up in the contemplative tradition and and our meeting a long time time ago was in that relationship between the, the the two so it was how do we not make a binary choice between personal faith and contemplative life and social justice but one as thomas merton and others have showed over the years does lead to the other and so if you just do the activism and the demonstrations and talk about social justice if you're not going deeper into your own faith activists will eventually burn themselves out they'll get weary they'll get tired they'll get into despair and even anger and rage and i've seen people out of that despair even lose their faith and yet if we don't uh act out of that deeply personal and contemplative faith in the world, then that can become, particularly in a consumer uh, narcissistic culture, which we live in, as we all know, faith can become almost a commodity, almost uh, something that we kind of add to our consumer list of books we've read and retreats we've done and all that. So how do we live in that sort of a uh, place of integral faith where we are uh, living the life of Christ uh, more and more deeply and then trying to take that faith as disciples of Christ into the world. I must admit, um, halfway through your book, I stopped and wrote down, this was the perfect book for me to read right now in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of this racial uh crisis that we are in and I was so grateful Christ uh, Christ in crisis is the name of the book and I want to know like in a sense you wrote it I'm sure three years ago but it's there in our hands fresh and ready and absolutely apt for the moment tell me why did you write the book well that's a great question um uh to be very very blunt after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, I received a legion of phone calls uh, from so many people who just didn't know what to do. And they thought I would. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't either. And so I was waking up every morning. Um, I couldn't sleep and we'd come downstairs to where I am right now in my little study and little retreat place. And, uh, you know, I just I was just struggling with what in the world to do. When I had black pastors calling me who were afraid of of their youth group kids being even more racially policed, when uh, immigrants would call and or people who were who were pastoring and say people don't know if they'll be together for dinner that night because of the deportations, um, uh, people people were. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Catholic school presidents would call and say, I can't get my Muslim students back to campus because there's a Muslim ban. Uh, they can't come <laughs> home. What? You know, yeah. it's all kinds of things like that. And so so I began looking at the Book of Acts in those first few chapters. And, I, you know, when you read Scripture, even if you've read the Scripture before, but you're coming at it with new questions. You always find new things. And so I found uh, that here's Peter and John, and they're, 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 they're coming out of the gate one day, and here's this disabled person who is called a, be- a beggar in the scripture. He says, he, says uh, he asks for some help, and Peter says famously, gold and silver have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus stand up and he did and so everything they did i noticed teaching healing preaching was in the name 
of Jesus. That phrase kept coming up in the name of Jesus. And when they then got arrested by the authorities, the the Texans, these, these were just uneducated, ordinary men in the Texas, which they weren't afraid of them, but it was this name they kept raising. It was causing all this trouble and stirring up the people and inspiring the people. And they brought them in and they said, finally, they went off in a corner and said, okay, we're going to let you go, but you can't use this name anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You can go and do your thing. Maybe you should all start faith-based nonprofits and compete for funding or something. (laughs) So um, uh, in Jesus' name, Peter preached to uh, he preached, and 3,000 came to Christ in one day, and and 5,000 the next time he did. And so clearly, it was the name of Jesus that was threatening to the authorities. And then they said, well, you can do what you want, but don't use that name anymore. And Peter famously said, well, um, uh, whatever, uh, well, whatever you, you say, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you're saying, we... We cannot, uh, we cannot not speak of what we have seen, who we have seen and heard. We cannot not speak in Jesus' name. And so it struck me that part of why we're in the situation we're in, or for us as Christians, a big part of why, is we're no longer speaking and living and acting in Jesus' name. This isn't just about a election and a politician. It reveals things about us that we have stopped listening to Jesus. Uh, and so uh, Bishop Michael Curry and I got together one, one night for what he, he wrote the in, intro to the book, what he calls the, the soul food dinner uh, in Washington, D.C. We closed the restaurant down late at night. And we decided to... Uh, Pull some elders together. Um, uh, elders just meaning uh, those of us who've gotten old doing this work for a long time, <laughs> and uh, and did a declaration called "Reclaiming Jesus," reclaiming Jesus. And we did that and did a video out of that with my young team here, and five million people responded. <laughs> went to that uh, reclaiming Jesus site. So then I decided. On the declaration to just take that every morning, come back down here at 4.30 uh, and start to write. And what I found was the questions Jesus asked, either asked or prompted. There were eight, each chapter is a question, like, who is my neighbor? <laughs> That's the most important question these days. Or what is truth? Um, these are questions Jesus prompted in how he, how he lived. And so every, there's a, power question, there's a neighbor question, there's a truth question, uh, there's a discipleship question. So all these questions are what the book is about. So let's get back to the questions that Jesus asked or prompted, and that's what the book is about. So around the country, we're having these new uh, conversations about Jesus. What did he say? What did he do? What did he mean? (laughs) And what does that mean for us today? It's been a remarkable time to have such conversations because these are the right questions we all have to ask if we if we uh, say we're followers of Jesus. I found it so powerful. I was so grateful for it. Uh, it, it you know, who will we love? Who will we hate is a question within this. And basically, one of the points you make is the opposite of loving our neighbor is not always hate. It may just be indifference. Um, I'm curious, and uh, I know that you mentioned that you came out of a white suburb of Detroit. When did you start asking these questions, Jim? How is it that it got hold of your life? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, Pope Francis used that that phrase, uh, the global indifference <laughs> mm. to our neighbor, which is such a powerful thing. For me, um, uh, this really kind of played out in my early life. I was raised in this uh, Midwest, uh, Middle American, Detroit, uh, white evangelical church, and uh, and uh, 
uh, my, <laughs> my first conversion was when a, a Sunday night revival preacher came in and all the, as we would have said in the old days, all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row. <laughs> because the closer <laughs> you are to a sermon, the more impact you'll have in your life, right? So I was, my parents, they, they loved me, but they were a little nervous because I, I wasn't saved yet. And I was getting up in years. I was six. So <laughs> I in that front row. And he said, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you'd be left all by yourself. Well, it got my attention, and I realized at six I'd have a five-year-old sister to support. <laughs> so <laughs> I asked my mom how to fix this, and she says, don't worry about that that raft of God loves you as a plan for your life. So I thought that sounded good, and I signed up. Uh, but then I got to be 15, 16, and I had another conversion, which was deeper. And that was because I was looking around now, listening to my city, paying attention, hearing the news, reading the papers, and something really big seemed really wrong in my city of Detroit, in my country. And nobody in my white world and church and school would talk about it. And when I began to ask questions, how come there's white Detroit where we live and black Detroit, which is not very far away, I hear there are black churches, how come we've never been there? and no one's ever come to visit us. And I hear people are hungry. I don't know people are hungry and don't have jobs and, and, and people are getting arrested and going to jail and I don't know anything like that. So what's going on here? And they told me I was too young to ask those questions. When I got older, I'd understand. <laughs> or they didn't know why things were that way either, but they'd always been that way. And the only honest answer I got was, son, if you keep asking these questions, you're going to get into trouble. <laughs> so that proved to be true. But I tell young people now, trust your questions and follow them mm -hmm. wherever they lead you. Mm -hmm. So my question took me into what we call back then the inner city. Mm -hmm. And I met the black churches who really took me in, this white kid asking obvious questions. And I still feel more at home than any place else in the black churches. Uh, they took in this white kid. And then I got jobs, took jobs alongside young men in Detroit who are my age. Uh, I needed a job to make money for college. They were working to support their families. But I, you know, I made these new coworkers and friends, and, and I realized that we both, we all have been born in Detroit, but we're living in different countries. And let's tie that into what's happening right now. So one day, I was a janitor at Detroit Edison, and I liked the job, and I particularly liked moving the heavy desk because I was young and strong and liked to do stuff <laughs> like that. And my buddy became Butch, and he was also like me. He liked to move heavy stuff around, so they would give us the big desk jobs. But then, this is how old I am. Back in those days, we had elevator operators. Imagine. <laughs> so when the elevator operators are old guys were on sick or on vacation, Butch and I would be put in the elevators. <laughs> and so when you are an elevator operator, they have to give you a break in the morning and the afternoon because your head begins to spin. So on my breaks, I go into his elevator and ride up and down with him. We just talk and talk. His breaks, he come into mine and we just talk and talk. <laughs> so our relationship grew and a friendship developed. And he took me home one night to meet his mom. His father had passed, his mom and his siblings. And so I remember we got talking about the police in Detroit. Now, you remember the the big so-called riots in Detroit and Newark in 1967 and the current report written about those. It was always uh, a police action that mm -hmm. sparked all those alleged riots, always. And so we got talking about the police with his mom. And his, now... Uh, she wasn't militant or political at all. She's like like my mom, worried about her kids. And but but you know, um, she said something that I'll never forget. As I'm talk, telling you about it, it's as vivid as it was all those years ago. She said, "Yeah, so I, I tell my kids if they're ever lost and can't find their way home, and they see a policeman, they should duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building." Wait till the police officer passes, 
and then find their way home. Wow. And when she said that, my mother's words echoed mm. in my head to all her five kids. Never lost. Can't find your way home. Look for a policeman. Mm. Policeman is your friend. He'll take you by the hand wow. and lead you home. Now, that was what you and I would call an epiphany for me. Yes. Uh, an awakening of things. And and my relationship in the black community, working with coworkers and colleagues in black churches, there was one epiphany after another until I realized that we were living in different countries. And it's interesting. It's amazing. It's so revealing that, again, it's police mm-hmm. incidents. Uh, when, when this white police officer in Minneapolis put his his knee on the black neck of George Floyd. We were all shut down in a pandemic, and so we were all watching. Yes. We were all watching. And every black parent I know in the country, when they saw that video, those excruciating eight minutes and 46 seconds watching the public murder of an unarmed black man, they saw their own sons and daughters under that same knee. Mm. And they saw themselves under that same knee. And almost no white people did. And then we began to learn how the knee wasn't just a knee, how the knee is a system Mm. and a culture Mm -hmm. and a habit and an idol and a sin, really Mm -hmm. America's original sin. And that's the book I wrote before this last one, it's about it's about our original sin of of racism, and now um, that book, American Original Sin, is selling more each week than it has in the calendar year, <laughs> because we're all going back to somehow, and this to me is a powerful thing to see how eight minutes and forty six seconds have become to use language that Henry and I would would know and often use a kairos moment a kairos time yes where things are spiritually impacted and that's led us to looking at 401 years got us here so eight minutes 46 seconds have opened up our watching now and listening to 401 years and how systemic racism is core to our our life and our systems and our values so it's opened up a whole new world as an inflection point. And it's a moment, uh, but I think it could have a momentum that could lead to some real change. That's my hope and my prayer. And I see it happening with a new generation, including my own boys, mm-hmm. who are uh, young men. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is a, the world is changing, and that's what moments of Kairos do. And so if... Uh, if Henry were still with us, we'd be talking, I know, all the time about this, and he would find his way out to the streets in those protests, because somehow uh, it's the COVID virus has laid bare and verified the unequal suffering of this pandemic, but also of everything in this society. So I see an opening here, a real possibility of change. And I think it it takes us back to the question of Jesus, like the one you mentioned, you know, who is my neighbor? That's, you know, this this lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, um, what must I do to hear eternal life? And Jesus, well, it's kind of simple. You love God and love your neighbor. And he says, okay, so who is my neighbor? Now, this is uh, right before the good, good Samaritan story. So this lawyer, I realized when I looked at that text again, the lawyer in this story was a Washington lawyer. <laughs> I know that. I know that tone of voice. You know. Okay, he wasn't saying, "How can I open myself up to my neighbor?" Saying exactly who is my neighbor, narrowing it down. And he tells the Good Samaritan story, and the power of that story is not just, you know, people pass by this man who was beaten and robbed and and laying on the ground, and one stopped to help him, and took time, energy, risk his own money, all the rest. But the real story is is the example 
of the good neighbor was a Samaritan who no Judeans would have thought to be like them. Uh, their neighbor, different, different yeah. race, mixed race. Even people not, that not they despised. Yeah. And, yeah, and he's the one who stopped to help someone who was different than him. And the story is, your neighbor is the one who's different than you. And and as um, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez said a long time ago, uh, you've got to go outside your circles, <laughs> your neighborhood perhaps, to find your neighbor. Mm. And so that's what we're learning right now. So that question just changes everything about our political conversation. So I want to go back to Jesus' questions and teachings and say, okay, did he mean it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if he did, what does it mean for us? I love how you um... – it's funny because, by the way, I was in Detroit at that time in in oh the in 67. I was going to the University of Michigan and uh, literally was in the city uh, of Detroit at that time. It was quite interesting to be there. But let's go to the now moment because the now moment, that word crisis, as you have pointed out, you know, it's that Chinese holds those two things. It holds danger, but it also holds opportunity. Now, I would agree with you. We are at a moment of opportunity, and we must not let it slip. We must not. But I'm so excited to see the young people that are, are bringing such leadership to this. And that does not mean that we, we are not part of it. We have to be more than ever part of it. Tell me a little bit about the Matthew 25 movement, because I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was so exciting. Tell me what that's about. Well, um you know, as I said a few moments ago, I was, uh, uh, I left my home church and my, that was my second family and they were happy to see me go. And, you know, they didn't want me to keep asking those questions. So I went to Michigan state, not too far from where you went to school, University of Michigan. And, and I, I had just given up on, on the church and, the faith, my childhood faith, and I joined the movements of my time, mm-hmm. uh, civil rights movement, uh, uh, anti-war in Vietnam, always about poverty. So I joined those movements, and and I, you know, like a lot of young people, were organizing, and and uh, those those uh, stories were very dramatic uh, uh, in those days, and so, but I decided in that period that I wanted I wanted my vocation to be you know, ch- changing this world uh, uh, making a difference I be an activist but I needed a foundation I needed a, a base I needed um, uh, guidance and direction for what's my what's my foundation and basis for how I want to live and I was reading at the time like a lot of young people my age were uh, Ho Chi Minh, Karl Marx, and Che Guevara, but I didn't find them satisfying. And so probably because I had never quite got shed of Jesus, because I was raised uh, in that world, I went back on my own after with the big student strike in 1970, where we took so many people to our state capital in Washington. It was part of all that, leading all that, the student strike in 1970 after uh, Cambodia was invaded and, and Kent State students were shot and killed. Uh, but I needed a bit, so I went back to the New Testament on my own. And I had now, every year so of now organizing and uh, <laughs> demonstrations and tear gas and being beat up by the police and all, all that stuff for all those years. Now I'm, I'm looking again at the Gospels and I find the Sermon on the Mount which totally turns the world upside down. <laughs> blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, blessed are the peacemakers. I didn't remember a sermon ever in my church in the Sermon on the Mount, which was the basic catechism, the instruction to all new converts to Jesus. Then I found this Matthew 25 text, and I just had never read anything like it in Ho Chi Minh, Karl Marx, or Che Guevara. I call it the, it was me text. <laughs> so Jesus says, um, I was hungry. It was me, you know. 
I, I was I was the one working multiple jobs and, and still couldn't feed my family. And then they cut nutrition programs, food stamps. <laughs> you know, that was me. Um, I was thirsty. Uh, you heard about those people up in Flint, those black folks that couldn't get clean water because of lead. Uh, that was me too. Uh, I was naked. I was, I was, everything was stripped away. Uh, I was in Guatemala and my family, uh, all the climate change, we couldn't grow any food anymore. And then gangs and cartels wanting my boy to be a soldier and threatening to rape my, my girls. And so we picked up everything and left and came to the United States where we were told we could have asylum. And then we got here and they took my kids away from me oh. and put them in cages. That was me. That was me. I was a stranger. The word stranger there in the text means immigrant, mm-hmm. refugee. That's what the word means. Mm-hmm. And how you treat them, he says, Jesus, is how you treat me. I was sick. I didn't have any health care. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, that's why people got COVID and died six times to one are now dying of COVID in the U.S. if they're black or brown. Uh, and, and I was in prison where drug use is exactly the same as whites and blacks, but, but incarceration, 3% of the population in the world, 25% of incarceration, almost all black and brown. That was me too. So all the stuff you see, Jesus was saying, that was me. That was me. And then they said, Lord, when do we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and in prison, a stranger? We didn't know it was you. And he says, well, as you've done it to the least of these, uh, you've done it to, to me. So that turned me around. That was my conversion text. I later found out when I met Dorothy Day, that was her conversion text as well. And the Matthew 25 movement is always to say, okay, where... Who are and where are those whom Jesus calls the least of these? There are final tests, if you will, of our discipleship. How we we say we, we love him, how do we treat them? And that becomes... So for me, that was the text that prompted my conversion, or my back, back to Christ, and the beginning of Sojourners, which when I met Dorothy later, she says, oh, you're, you're kind of like the Protestant worker. <laughs> so, okay, we'll, we'll take that. So that text for me is still. I would just say this about that text: most of the my worldview has changed most when I've been in places I was never supposed to be, or with people I was never supposed to know mm. and become friends with, like my friend Butch in Detroit and his mom, who talked to me about the police. So being in places ever since that I'm not supposed to be as a person uh, with my color and my, my uh, you know, status and my American uh, privilege, all of that, being in places where the people that Jesus talked about in that text are has what's brought me to Christ again and again and again. So there's a movement now. We won just last week on... DACA, the Dreamer Kids, uh, mm-hmm. a victory that has to go further. We're 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 now, we're now seeing <laughs> we're, we're seeing people say Black Lives Matter that have never said that before, or never knew what it meant before. So I think we're maybe uh, if we pay attention, uh, trying to come back to and reclaim Jesus. Jim, I am so excited that you have stuck to your calling you know i i can imagine at times that would have been other things offered that you could go after but i am so glad because you bring such leadership to this and you unite us and this is a moment this is an important moment and it must not pass um i i would uh love to encourage people to certainly get this book Christ Christ in Crisis it's a good book and it will inspire you and it will clarify things for you but it also brings you back in a way which I I I have always found about Henry's writings it's Christocentric it brings you right back to what did Jesus have to say and how does that become important to us and how do we live this out um 
one of the chapters was on, you know, you used all these different parts that Jesus stressed. And one was on uh, really the challenge not to fear, to fear not, which I thought was important. But I couldn't help asking because when you've been at the front lines of protest and activism, have you ever been afraid? Have you feared for your life? Have you feared for your family? You're sensitive to the fears that others are experiencing because they are so exposed and uh, that's certainly what is being exposed right now in this moment, what's happened to black young men and black women. And just really, it's terribly important. But tell me, I'm curious about you. Have you have you faced that sense that your life was in danger? Well, first to say that um, the, it's connected to the issue of truth. When we hear political leaders say uh, there is no truth or it's all fake news or uh, strong, the strong men of the world want to make up their own truth and want you only to believe them. Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So when we're surrounded by untruth, it's really we're, our freedom's being taken away. And then it says perfect love casts out fear. Now, Jesus said, you know, finally what casts out our fear is that perfect love. And so uh, fear is being used all the time. <laughs> when, when people in this country who know nothing about what's happening in Central America are told there are caravans of immigrants coming and they're full of drug dealers and gangs and <laughs> rapists and violence. None of that's true, but when, they're, when the fear is appealed to, uh, we're in trouble, and, and, and so fear leads to hate, which leads to violence. And that's what we're in, in a time now where, where we have fear and hate and violence. And so how do you reclaim Jesus, who many, many times in the New Testament said, don't be afraid, mm-hmm. don't be afraid. Um, now, he he wasn't saying there's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> It's back to the Timothy text about living in a spirit of fear. Our politics now want us to live in a spirit of fear. And and when I was a kid, I remember the story I was told about, you know, the disciples being in the boat, and there was a big storm. And here's this figure out there. He's walking on the water. And, and and then he comes into the boat, and this storm calms. And my cycle teacher said, in a difficult time, you want to always get Jesus in your boat. Amen. <laughs> oh, that's, that's still good. That's still good. So how do we, uh, it's not that, in fact, uh, we're built, um, uh, human beings are, are built uh, in terms of our uh, instincts and biological and anthropological history. We're built to be afraid of things. What fire's hot? Hot stove. Don't let your kids have stove. It's what you do with that fear and how perfect love can overcome that fear. And yeah, have I, have there been times when I've been afraid for my, my life? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really, it's somehow, it's a question of freedom and I don't want that fear uh, to control, to control me or my faith or constrict my faith or take this, my faith away. In fact, it's, it's, it's what does it mean to go to that, that love that Jesus talks about, not only to love your neighbor, but he says, if love your enemy, that may be the toughest one of all. How do you love your enemies and not want to, you, you want to win them over instead of winning over them. Uh, King taught me that a long time ago. So, sure, there are threats in this world that we all face, but the, the real, what we're learning right now is, uh, is for uh, every black parent I know is afraid of their kid walking out of the door in the morning. Uh, white parents don't feel that. Um, no matter what door they walk out of, they're in more jeopardy, danger, and that fear. What do we do with that? What do we, I, as you might or might not know, I was a Little League coach for 22 seasons and 
11 years, both my boys. And uh, all the black players I've coached, all of them, at some point had the talk with their parents about how to behave in the presence of a police officer, what to do and not do, and say and not say, and keep your hands up and your eyes straight because their parents are afraid of them being hurt. And none of the white kids I ever coached ever had the talk with their parents. So I would tell my my white players about the talk that they're, I said, well, I tell my black players, tell, tell your teammates the talk you have with your parents. And we'd have these conversations about, about um, uh, the talk that some kids had and some kids didn't have. That's all coming out now. Coming, it's an inflection point. It's a listening point. And uh, my my boys, who are still athletes and have lots of teammates of a different color, uh, they don't want their teammates or classmates uh, to have to live with that fear of police just because of the color of their skin. And they're mad about that. And a new generation, I think, is going to help change that. So I want to overcome that. Fear is used against us. And even when we have circumstances where there's risk, and no, no one ever said this Christian faith would be without risk or without sacrifice. I mean, look at how Jesus uh, won the world by, by a cross and a resurrection. That's, that's at the core of everything that we, this is how you do it. <laughs> he said, that's why we have the Eucharist to remember, this is the way you do it. Broken bread and poured out wine, poured out blood, broken body, Blood. This is how you change the world. And he wants to remind us of that. Everybody says, hey, do this, keep doing this, and remember me. Uh, I always loved it when when I would be up at, at Yale speaking and Henry was there, or Harvard. Uh, uh, he, he would have this Eucharist. <laughs> He's a professor at Yale or Harvard. But once a week, there was a Eucharist for students who, uh, who wanted to come. And I, I would sometimes be there. Uh, I'd be speaking on the day sometimes deliberately when he would have his Eucharist. Uh-huh. <laughs> I could be part of, part of that too. So I think this is really a matter of faith now. And so how do we, I often say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. This isn't about left and right, about Republican, Democrat, about politics. Uh, let's go deeper. Let's go deeper into what Jesus said and what he did and ask what that means for us right now. Jim, I couldn't have wished for a better person to talk to on this topic right now. I'm blessed. I really am. Something that uh, you know, I saw toward the end of your book, and which I, I, I will quote or you can quote, it was Mary Glover's motto. Lord, we know you're going to be coming through the line today, so Lord, help us to treat you well. And that was in a food line. And I just think... I think that needs to be how we look at every single human being that we're with. You, Lord, are there. And how can I treat you well? How can I recognize you no matter what color, no matter where you come from? How can I be the one that welcomes you and makes the place safe for you? Well, Mary Glover was my, she was my elder. Mary Glover was my elder. So in the, we, we moved in this very, very poor neighborhood in D.C., and uh, and this text, at 25, had changed my life and turned me in this whole direction. And then I met this woman. She 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 was a, uh, an African American Pentecostal woman, and and she was one of those people, the glue that holds neighborhoods together. Uh-huh. And so we began a you know just a food line, yeah. just 20 blocks from the White House, because people needed food, groceries every week. Yeah. And she was one of the volunteers, and we were we were all volunteers. But every time before we had we get the food ready, every time we would stop and pray before people came in the door. Two hundred people waiting outside for groceries, just not far from the White House. And she would always pray because she was our best prayer. She prayed like um, somebody who knew to whom she was talking. <laughs> she said, "She said uh, you can tell she's been doing this all the time." She said, "Lord." Thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning. Thank you. The walls of my room were not the walls of my grave, and my bed was not my cooling board. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and she prayed this prayer every time. She said, Lord, we know that you'll be coming through this line today. So, Lord, help us to treat you well. 
she saw Jesus in a way I never had. Hers was the best commentary in Matthew 25 I'd ever read. And she became my elder, and she knew she was my elder. And she would often stop me and say, okay, you got now let's, let's think about that. And she didn't have any formal ed- education, but she knew where to look for Jesus. So I always try to pay attention. She's, she's passed now. But Mary Glover always taught me where and how to look for Jesus. Lord, you'll be coming through this line today. So, Lord, help us to treat you well. So that's a great, uh, that, that, that's how I ended the book. <laughs> and that's always uh, a good end to a conversation. Well, the book is a delight. It's a wonderful book. It's an important book. And I want to encourage our listeners to get Christ in Crisis. And I'd also like to encourage them, go to Sojourners. You want to stay on top of what's happening? They're the best. They'll give you ideas about how you can be involved. There's great articles. It's really worth signing up and being part of Sojourners. Jim, I thank you. This is um, many years after Henny died. It's almost coming to 25 years, but... Wow. Your friendship shaped him, and he shaped mm-hmm. you, and it's, yeah, and sure. I, I just value that so much. And I, I thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you so much for that. Well, I love to hang out with Henry and his friends. So, uh, sojo.net, i got a great young team, and they do this great website called sojo.net. That's the way to find our stuff. And the Christ and Christ book is coming out in paperback in the fall, but the, the America's Original Sin book is coming back because of where we are now. And so I, I think we all have to go back and deal with, repent of, if you will, America's Original Sin. And as you know, repentance doesn't mean feeling guilty or sorry. It means turning around and going in a whole new direction. So Amen. I think we need a new conversation about America's Original Sin, but I also think we've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean to reclaim Jesus? And that's, I think, the future for us now. I certainly want to encourage all our listeners to become part of, uh, part of the answer. Join the forces that are out there that are alive and are wanting change and be a part of it. Be part of it. It's important. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for this conversation. You You are so gracious. Enjoy, (laughs) always enjoy talking to you. Blessings. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope this interview with Jim Wallace inspired and encouraged you. We hope you take time to give us a thumbs up or a review. And we invite you to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to reach our spiritually hungry world with Henry's writings, his encouragement, and of course, his reminder that each of us is a beloved child of God. Our podcasts are on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and even YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, where we'll give you regular updates on our podcasts. For more resources related to today's podcast, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You can find additional content, book suggestions, and other additional material, including a link to Books to Get You Started, in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nowen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.